Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I've been waiting for a podcast like you to come into my life. I want to thank Barner for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 Minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Before I get rolling, I want to invite everyone to participate in our Facebook group. Just put in Stick to Wrestling. It'll come up. You'll find it, and I will invite you. No problem. Been an interesting week there, as I'm sure you're all should be aware. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just search the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And right now, I want to bring on a new guest who I think is has a really interesting story. His name is Ian Totten. Ian, Ian, thank you for coming on Stick to Wrestling. John, thank you so much for having me on Stick to Wrestling. This is this show is my weekly Friday end of the week listen, and I couldn't be more ecstatic to be on. Well, thank you very much, uh, and yeah, well, thank you for listening and coming on. Uh, we're going to talk about the primarily we're going to talk about an ECW event that Ian was at that he went to on February 17th, 1996. It was called Cyber Slam 96. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. I just found out about a lot of this stuff today, and I really wasn't able to delve into it before podcasting. It's like I found it. I watched the show last night. We'll get more into that. But in Cyber Slam 96 was really the first wrestling internet convention that at least I'm aware of. Yeah, it's, it's odd. My cousin and I had been going to to ECW shows off and on for probably about a year at this point. We had found it through our local cable network. I'm originally from New Jersey. And, you know, they really per- were pushing it in our area, really, as another ECW super show. And then we found out that it was going to be broadcast live on uh, the Internet, which in 96, almost nobody had, y- you know, but my cousin and I were, oh, this is really cool. We're going to be part of a pay-per-view. It's going to be broadcast live on the Internet. We really went there primarily to see Sabu. <laughs> that was our our thing. And it was so much. I mean, there was. People from all over, it was unlike any other ECW show that I had been to. There was people from out of the area, not just New York, Philly, and New Jersey, but people from Michigan and a couple people that we met from California. And it was, I had never been to anything like it and really haven't been to many things like that since, except for WrestleMania. Okay, so how far away was the ECW arena from where you lived? Oh, gosh, I'm going to say maybe an hour, 45 minutes. I actually grew up where the uh, the president of Arcadian Vanguard currently lives. Oh, wow. OK. Yes. <laughs> so you and Brian are practically neighbors is what you're trying to tell me. Uh, back. Oh, well, I haven't lived there <laughs> in you know, 20 something years. But, yeah, I was there for a long time. And at this period of time, 96, I was still living in that area and. You know, I was the only wrestling fan I knew other than my cousin. <laughs> okay. No, I, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, hardly anyone had the internet in 1996, and that that's accurate. I mean, I went to the post office a couple of weeks ago 
and their Wi-Fi was down. So the post office was basically closed. I mean, that's how much we have come to rely on it. But yet, you know, this is the the very infancy of people using the the Internet. Now there are people, adults who don't know what life is without it. It's nuts. Oh, it is. And we I mean, we had it. In my I was in high school at this point. We had classes in high school in order to teach us how to use the Internet. And there were kids in the class that knew it better than the teachers because nobody had it. Yeah, you it's, put it's in a different. website and be sitting there for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, those are the good old days, like lighting up AOL and, and being charged $100 a month in 1995 money to use it. And you still loved it. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, what I learned today, Ian, is it was part of a fan convention. I like, you know, I watched the show yesterday. I did some research uh, today. I just stumbled on a YouTube clip clip that was about over four hours long where the ECW wrestlers were were taking uh, questions from everyone. Were, were you part of this? We were there for a little bit of it, not all of it. That was something that ECW would do off and on, especially for really big events. My cousin and I weren't smart fans at this point. We understood that not everything we were seeing was legitimate, but we didn't know the extent of it. Granted, I was only 15 at this point. My cousin was 21, and neither of us had ever heard of The Observer or anything like that. And it was very odd to see wrestlers interacting with, you know, the people who were in the crowd like they were regular people. Kind of off-putting because, again, we didn't know anything. I'd never heard of the, The Observer. All I knew about wrestling was what I'd seen on TV, what I've seen at matches, and what I had encountered in the uh, after mags outside of that, you know, my 15 year old brain, all these guys are who they portray themselves to be when I watch them on television. And you can see them, you know, walking around and talking with people just like it was, you know, somebody at a party. And that was, now you use the word off putting, like, did, how do you mean that? Like, did it bring, like, the wrestlers, I don't know, like, down from their star status for you, or? A little bit. It made them real. It it put, you know, again, I was 15 years old. Sure. I didn't have exactly the easiest period in my life going on at that point. <laughs> I, um, I've been there. Wrestling was my escape. You know, I had wrestling and I had heavy metal music. And my cousin and I actually just discovered ECW by chance one night. And it was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I love it. You know, I grew up with Hulk Hogan and uh, Randy Savage and all of them. And at everyone in my family, with the exception of my mother, I was the only one who really was into wrestling. Um, but she wasn't going to take me to Philly to go see wrestling. So it was oh, my no. cousin and I. So we get, you know, we would go to shows. We saw stuff before shows at some points and after shows of the guys not really being in character, so to speak, but nothing like this where they were interacting with the fans like they were friends. So, again, it, you know, it was off putting because it wasn't what I was expecting. We, you know, we weren't, you know, the typical ECW fans. A lot of these people interacted with them outside of the ECW arena out in Philly and at the hotels. That wasn't us. I see. Yeah, Philly was a, a I mean, back, going back to the 80s, Philly was a big time 
uh, kind of a smart fan scene. They had a, a gentleman, uh, Joel Goodhart, who had a radio show in the mid 80s where, you know, it was he treated it like it was he covered wrestling for what it was. It was not a work. And he would talk about real news. And, you know, we didn't have that up in Boston. Philly had that. Mm-hmm. Philly, you know, you go to the bar, you go to the uh, the hotel bar after the matches and hang out with the wrestlers. if They are willing to hang out with you. I mean, it was a, a totally different scene. And ECW was kind of an offshoot of that. I don't think they could have done ECW anywhere but Philadelphia, anywhere in the world. Uh, possibly. I think they could have gotten away with it in New York, which I learned later when I lived in Manhattan. I worked for a guy who, oddly enough, he and the guys he worked with used to go and hang out at a specific bar over by Madison Square Garden when the wrestlers were in town. And he told me stories about just hanging out with them. And yeah, they would stay in gimmick, but they weren't the guys they were on TV. They were toned down to a, you know, a normal level. Possibly could have taken off in a place like New York just because, you know, they had that history there and the people in New York really were into their wrestling. They were. It's just, uh, there was something about the water in Philadelphia, man. There, yes. there was just something very, you know, I've attended wrestling shows in New York and it, in Philadelphia was just a, a very different vibe. And I say that in the, the best way possible. I, may, I remember you're talking about the wrestlers being in character. I remember being in a bar in was it was either Baltimore or Philly. It had to be Philly. And the Midnight Express were there, and Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton were just sitting there. And AWA Wrestling was on the TV in the bar, and Paulie's original Midnight Express were on. And Road Warrior Hawk yells across the room to the Midnight Express, "Hey, there's a real Midnight Express right there!" And I'm like, these guys are supposed to hate each other, and mm-hmm. they're doing this in public. It was great. Well, and th- you're right about the vibe. I mean, I 98 through 99, I attended every Madison Square Garden show that took place because I was living in Manhattan. There was a vibe in MSG, unlike any other place I went to. There was a vibe at the ECW arena and every ECW show I went to that was different. There was just a different something about the fans. They were a lot more bloodthirsty. They were much more vocal. They would let the wrestlers know if they screwed up or if they just weren't digging what they were doing, which you saw, you know, in a couple of these matches on this show, the fans just weren't into what they were doing. No. And you know what? Um, I'm, gl- I'm glad I have you on. I'm glad we're doing the show. I'm glad you attended. But there was a lot to not like on this show. Yes, there was. I was watching it back and I'm like, yeah, this really was a one match show. <laughs> And even, you know what, I, I won't get into that right away, but even then, the, the one match wasn't that good, but we'll, or at least it's not as good as people remember it, but we'll mm-hmm. get into that. Now, the biggest thing that happened on this show, obviously, Brian Pillman had just been fired from WCW the week before, and I had known about it, and we all kind of knew that there was an element of work in the whole Brian Pillman story, there are people who were wondering, like, okay, is this real? You know, I would get on the AOL grandstand. They'd be like, is this real? I'm like, no, definitely not, because if it was real, things would be different. Like, you know, if someone goes off on a hot mic, you cut the mic. That's all. And mm-hmm. so that's why I knew that there was a, at least an element of work in the Pillman thing. And he'd been fired from WCW. And I'm like, and the firing 
was supposed to be at least all part of the work. Like Pillman was supposed to get rehired by WCW and he tricked them. He got signed to a, a contract, a, a contract that they were, the WWF was not giving or had not been giving anyone for decades. It was a guaranteed contract, but in the middle, Brian Pillman on February 17th, 1996, about a week after he's fired from WCW shows up at the ECW arena. They do the thing where the lights go off. Oh no, what's going on. They come back on and Pillman is in the ring. Did you have any idea Pillman was showing up? I had no idea Pillman was showing up. And actually I only knew who Pillman was from a book that my high school library had. I, Grew up as a WWF fan. I saw uh, Jim Crockett promotions from cousins of mine who were from the South when I was growing up. What they were doing didn't appeal to me. I knew what WCW was. In my mind, they were like, you know, a kindergarten version of WWF. So reading this book we had that was, you know, supposed to expose the stars of wrestling, I knew who Pillman was, but I'd never seen him. But when he came out, my cousin is like, who the heck is this guy? Why is everybody going nuts? And I'm like, that's flying Brian Pillman. And he's like, who? And I was like, WCW. And my cousin's just looking at me like I got three heads. And it was just a situation where it was like, I'm not explaining it right now. I had no idea about, you know, the the gimmick that he was working, the whole loose cannon thing. There were people there, though, that honestly believed that he was going off script and doing whatever he was doing. But I was standing there and I wasn't exactly in my right mind. We didn't vibe on a couple of things beforehand and I'm watching and I'm going, this guy's, you know, up there playing everybody and nobody's getting it. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned WCW, you seeing it as a kindergarten version of the WWF. That's how a lot of people saw it. I mean, maybe not me, maybe not to the average person listening who, you know, is a big time wrestling fan, but that was just a reality. It's like, you know, a lot of people tune in for the first time and, oh, these guys are trying to be the WWF. Well, yeah, and that's, I would see them. I saw them a couple of times because they would, I remember they would have advertisements on the local TV, WCW Saturday night. It was on at the same time that, uh, Saturday Night Live was. So if Saturday Night Live was boring, I'd switch channels and watch that. And I remember watching it and seeing Sting being thinking to myself, this guy's like a, a Dollar General's version of Hulk Hogan. I mean, and like I said, that, you know, that is what the a lot of people looked at WCW as being just, you know, this WWF was pro wrestling and this thing's trying to be pro wrestling. Well, it, it you know, you, you got to understand a little bit. My mom had been a major wrestling fan back in the 50s and the 60s up into, I believe she stopped going in the late 1970s. So I knew who guys like Bruno San Martino were and uh, Spiros Arion. I knew who Ric Flair was before I ever saw him. I knew who the Von Erichs were. Because I'd be watching WWF and she'd say, these guys are nobody compared to so-and-so. Who? Yeah. And a, a story I told in another Facebook group is I, the first time I saw Dusty Rhodes, I said, who is that? And my mom just said, oh, that's the American dream. He's just a fat ass. He used to be really good. Now he's washed <laughs> up. <laughs> and it, that's kind of how I grew up with wrestling. I mean, I had 
I have pictures somewhere of Ric Flair versus Junkyard Dog that my mom took from the crowd. So, you know, she was into it and she kind of was cool with me being into it. <sighs> we should swap. We should swap moms. <laughs> Honest to God. I, I, I've told this before. I used to have WWF, WWF wrestling every Friday night going going on literally a mile from where I lived. I could have brought myself there and I was forbidden to go. My parents hated wrestling that much. I have no idea why my mom stopped going. She just, at some point in the late 70s, early 80s, I guess maybe around the time my older sister was born, she just said, I'm not into this anymore. But prior to that, she used to go all the time. I had cousins that she used to take over to the Greensboro Coliseum all the time when they'd go to visit. It's like, Ah. how did I, why don't you take me to go see this stuff? I'm not taking you to New York. Okay. Do you know that that this all totally makes sense because I I just realized that your mom grew up either in or outside Greensboro like that pro wrestling was the sport back there in the 70s they didn't have the Panthers they didn't have you know the the uh, the hockey team the Hurricanes you know that pro JCP was theirs and JCP UNC basketball and NASCAR were their sports my well, understanding is actually my mom grew up in Manhattan oh wow so. Yes, yeah, so she was my whole mom's whole side of the family is all from New York. They're all from Manhattan, the uh, the Upper East Side. They were her and her brothers were all about Bruno San Martino and all of that. One of her sisters moved to the Carolinas when she got married, and my mom would go down there and, being an aunt, would take the kids to go see wrestling. Okay, and it's like, how did I got you and they got this that? <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> Oh, man. But all right, all right. So how many ECW shows had you gone to about how many before this event? I'm going to say pro- we probably by this point, we'd probably been to about 12. Oh, wow. We yeah, we hadn't got just gone to the ECW arena shows. We were at the Big, a- uh, the Big Apple Blizzard Blast. We had gone to a couple shows in Jim Thorpe at that rickety old building that was just absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, you know, we would find out because, again, we had stuff going on in our family and it was like, let's, you know, it wasn't that expensive. My cousin could drive. Let's just go out and make a day of it. Get away from the area. Ah, uh, I miss those days. Like while we're sitting there watching WWF wrestling and, you know, this Friday night coming to where in Massachusetts and we'd be like, we're going. Well, yeah, my cousin, he had cable. We didn't have cable, and he would call me up, and he'd be like, hey, you know, they're going to be up in Jim Thorpe this weekend. What are you doing? Nothing. All right, I'll get us tickets. And he'd come pick me up, and off we'd go. Oh, <laughs> man, those great memories. So, yeah, Something people don't understand. I know that I've seen this a lot. There's a misconception that ECW went ran weekly. It didn't. <laughs> no, Like, no. a lot of those shows... They'd run, you know, up in Jim Thorpe or out in, you know, Tamaqua, and then they'd run the ECW arena. They wouldn't be there for another month. No, they were the return of, I mean, it was almost the return of monthly house shows that built up. Like, you know, one show would build up, the other show would build up, the other show, etc. Yeah, it's. I, we didn't understand that at first because naturally we just had the television show before we went. But then we went, we realized 
after going there because, you know, you're sitting there for three hours for a television taping of just nonstop back to back to back. And then you see the program over the month and, okay, they just broke up that show we were at in multiple episodes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember when ECW first started and their main attractions were Shane Douglas, Terry Funk and Sabu. And mm-hmm. it seemed like, you know, they had they had that infamous uh that infamous three way dance which people say were you know, coming out was oh my god, it was the greatest match ever, five stars. And I remember when I first saw it, it was really disappointing. And I saw it again maybe a year ago and without my my hopes going through the roof, like now I think it sucks. Oh, it wasn't that bad. It was like a three and a half star match, which is actually very good. But mm-hmm. I mean, you could see ECW, like I said, building from show to show. Okay, well, this month was Terry Funk versus Shane Douglas. Now we've got Shane Douglas Sabu. Um, at, at least at first, they did a really good job booking, and they were still doing a good job booking here. I thought they were. It's it's odd. My cousin and I would go. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you right off the bat, Sabu is my favorite wrestler of all time. I don't know how we grew up with what I grew up with. It's just something about what what he did and how he did it. He's he was just mesmerizing to me, and he was the whole reason I was going to ECW shows. So that period of time where he was fired, the shows were cool, but there was something major missing because the guy that they really built the whole company around wasn't there. You know, Sabu is such an interesting case. By the year, I want to say like 99, 2000, I mean, Sabu was completely out. People, you know, didn't want to see his matches. But 95, 96 was all about Sabu. You had to be there. Yeah, and well, that's something people don't get, um, especially a lot of these deathmatch fans is, for the most part, up until about 96, 97, he wrestled in his matches and built to the really crazy stuff most of the time. And I don't know if it's just his body was breaking down at that point, but then it just switched to, okay, now everything's just stunts. And that's really where I lost ECW because it was like, he's not wrestling anymore. He's just jumping off of stuff and throwing chairs. And, you know, I like the current product, but that is a big complaint about the current product that like nothing is nothing is a finisher. Like every move, no matter how devastating it Mm -hmm. looks, they're kicking out. Well, yeah. And you could tell with him if he missed his table spot, usually through the crowd or he put it between the rings and go for the DDT. If he missed that, then the match was going to keep going for a while. If he hit it, the match was either going to get called because neither man could continue or he was getting the pin pretty quickly. And he, you could tell that after seeing him alive for a couple of times of how it's going to go with his matches. So, wow, as a as a kid in his mid-teens, you picked up on that. That's great. Well, because he was just he was mesmerizing to me because, again, I'd never seen anybody doing that stuff. In the manner that he was doing it, you know, again, he was building to it like you had like uh, Ian Rotten who was in there or and um, Axel Rotten. They were let's go smoke a cigarette matches because I don't want to see two guys just beat each other senseless for no reason with and just do nothing but use weapons and broken glass. And it, it did that didn't interest me, but the fans ate it up. Huh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's funny. ECW was like, you know, what we're talking about is more than tw- uh, 
26 years old, but like back then, it's been said so many times it's become a cliche, but cliches become cliches because they are, there's truth to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, we'd never seen anything like that before. So even though ECW did not age well, I mean, I watched the show and I'm just like, oh, man, what, what were we all thinking? But in 95, 96, like we ate it all up because we had never seen anything like that before. Oh, yeah. You'd never see anything like that on the WWF. Can you imagine Shawn Michaels coming out and putting somebody through a table in 95 or, you know, getting on the microphone and dropping F-bombs like they're going out of style? That never would have happened. There that, there would have been a riot over that. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, and it's just not the kind of wrestling Vince wanted to promote. And kind of the spirit of ECW is was like, hey, you know, we're not wrestling for little kids like WWF and WCW is it's, you know, it's for adults. And like I said, you know, I loved it at first, but like I would have my friends over, they'd be watching and they'd be like, what is this? What is wrong with you? And I can get that because, you know, I think I heard you mention it on stick on this show before, after that first pay-per-view, they jumped the shark. After that, it was just nothing but really, but garbage matches. And what can shock and titillate the people the most next? Yeah, ECW definitely jumped the shark as soon as that pay-per-view came and went. It was like they it was like they ran out of ideas all at once. But let me get back to the Pillman thing because it must have been wild seeing that live. You knew who he was. Your brother did not know who he was. The people in the audience totally knew who he was. And then I mean, just describe what it was like. Again, I think I said this a few minutes ago. I was watching it, and just the way he was acting and the other people were acting towards him, I was smart enough to know that if he was really just going off, you wouldn't have these cops that look like they stepped out of a 1970s biker bar coming into the ring to you know try and shove him out. They would have been football tackling him and handcuffing him, especially the things that he was saying. And I'm standing, I was watching him. And there was people in the crowd that wanted to go over the rail after him. They were screaming bloody murder, wanting his head because of the things he was saying. He was calling them smart marks and, you know, saying he's going to pee in the ring. Um, There were people in the audience who were legitimately enraged by the things he was saying. And again, I didn't know what terms like smart mark or anything was, but I was watching and I'm just thinking to myself, this guy's playing everybody here. Yeah, and for those unaware, Pillman goes in, he at first begins to act like the rebellious babyface, like, oh, I'm here in Philadelphia where, you know, they can't take away my constitutional rights to speak like the announcers in WCW did, and then all of a sudden he turns on everybody. Well, yeah, and he he just went completely off the rails out of nowhere, and again— you know, he's insulting the crowd. He's insulting, you know, the company itself, uh, everything having to do with it. He's insulting Eric Bischoff. And there were people there who were le- legitimately wanted to uh, cause him harm because of the things he was saying. And again, my co- my cousin had no idea who he was. I'm standing there. I'm watching it. You know, this is pretty cool. You don't get to hear this kind of language on the WWF TV. But again, there was just, I don't know if it was, you know, because I was self-medicated or what, but I could tell that he was playing a part. 
Yeah, um, it was it was pretty interesting. The whole thing. Did it look out? It, not maybe not to you, but to the average person, did it look like things got completely out of control when? For those unaware, Pillman said he was going to pull out his junk and take a leak in the rink, right? And he 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 starts to do it. I knew a guy who said, "Yeah, he pulled it out." And um, Heyman, Todd Gordon, and Shane Douglas come running out. It didn't look out of did it, or how did how did it look to you? Did it look like things were getting out of control, or did it look scripted? To me, it looked scripted. Again, just because of the way they were acting towards him and uh you, you know hindsight's 2020 i didn't i hadn't seen this in probably 15 years until i watched it the other night but i remember when i was there and i'm thinking to myself this is a complete work not those terms but you know he's playing us all just because of how they were acting towards him and i was thinking to myself if he was legitimately doing whatever he wanted they'd be you know, physically removing him, whether he wanted it or not. He yeah, got that, a little of that when he got out of the ring, but not what I think if somebody was legit, like Jake Roberts, when he was on the pay-per-view and he was drunk and everything, and they were trying to get him out of the ring. There was a complete difference between what I saw at the cyber slam versus what uh, Jake Roberts did when they tried to get him out of the ring, when he was pulling his pants down. Yeah. <laughs> good, good analogy. I mean, but yeah, I was still on AOL and I had people asking me, oh, and I, I, I still had people asking me, you know, is this a work? Is Pillman going into business for himself? And I'm, like, I'm like, why would he transport himself to Philadelphia to do something like that? And obviously the promotion was in on it with the lights going off and everything. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all of a sudden, like, why would Pillman just go into business for himself? And I'm like trying to explain this to people. And it's like, you know. I, I get it. Like, you you know, you're new to being a quote unquote smart wrestling fan. I don't know. Well, yeah. And you, th- like I said, there was people in the audience that were re- re- legitimately enraged with what he was saying. You can hear some of them in the on the video screaming for him to get get him out of the ring. You know, I know there was a guy next to us saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kick your effing ass. And my cousin and I are standing there. My cousin was laughing because he was completely out of his element, even though he'd been to a number of shows with me, you know, and we're hearing them there, you know, they're trying to talk as though it's realistically happening by using shoot terms to discuss it. You know, this is, you know, this isn't what we had planned and all of that stuff. And I was just think, standing there thinking to myself, no, this is exactly what you had planned. You want people to talk. Yeah. And they did. Well, let me throw this in real quick. You, you, you were just saying that there were people in the crowd who wanted to get their hands on Brian Pillman. Trust me. No, you didn't. Um, no. But it, it was it was one of those nights. And this happened not frequently. It probably happened like four or five times where I would get home late on a Saturday and there would be multiple uh, messages on my answering machine. And this was one of those nights. It's like Brian Pillman showed up at ECW and here's what he did. And, you know, it, it was that big a deal that, you know, a big star like Brian Pillman just shows up in ECW. Oh, it was because, I mean, you, legitimately, other than the occasional guy who had been in big in Crockett or in the WWF during the 80s. Everybody who was in ECW whose last name wasn't Funk was a nobody. 
you know, and he was a name everybody there knew. Even there, it, I mean, he got a pop that was bigger than most of the guys there who were their stars because he was quote unquote a real star. And that happened whenever somebody who was a name came in. Huh. Okay. One thing I I wanted to bring up too is um Brian Pillman, you know, he was a big star in WCW. He got all of that, you know, and he was big enough so that when he showed up, people started calling my house. I mean, that was that was great. But you mentioned the security. I mean, <laughs> you if you had if like you were saying, if you knew anything about how security officers work, you knew like this wasn't real. I mean, like you said, you're they're dressed up like they're guys in a biker bar in the 1970s. And their way of mo- getting Brian Pillman out of the building is to take him through the crowd. Yeah, they're doing that. And they, they tried to portray them as though they were some uh, some Philly police officers. And I've seen Philly police officers before then and since. And there was no way they were Philly cops just by the way they dressed and the way they moved. But. They're trying to get him over the railing, and my cousin's like, why are they bringing him out the front door? Why don't they just drag him out back where their cars are? I don't know. <laughs> now, what was your reaction to the scene where Brian Pillman gets away from security, a fan spits on him, Brian spits, Pillman spits back, the guy takes the worst swing known to man at Pillman. This is a guy in the audience. And mm-hmm. Pillman drags him over the rail, brings him into the ring, and just beats the crap out of him. What was your reaction to that? Instantly, I knew that that was part of the show. If I'm not mistaken, that guy was part of their ring crew. And I may be mistaken on that, but I have seen that guy at shows before working for the company. Okay. And just the fact of what he's doing to the guy in the ring it was automatic. There's no way that this guy's just a fan because I've seen fans get in the ring with wrestlers and I've seen what happens. And they're, they're on the outside while Pillman's just pummeling this guy. If it was a real fan, automatically they would have been all over him like, you know, he just stole something. And that was yeah. the first thing I saw. As soon as he grabbed him and pulled him in, the fans are going nuts and he gets him in the ring. It was just like, there's no way this guy's a fan. And then we saw who it was like, this guy works for them. I mean, and mind you, this all happens. He he manages to attack the fan and drag him into the ring and give him a beating in the ring all after Pillman escaped from security. Yeah, and security and Todd Gordon and all they're all just standing there for a couple of seconds yelling at him. It's a, you, he just assaulted one of your fans. He's on your payroll. You're not going to get in the ring and take him out instantly. And of course, the fan, after getting beaten up by Brian Pillman, plays dead like a wrestler being taken out on a stretcher and is actually taken out on a stretcher. Like that's not what people do when they get the crap beat out of them. They're in the fetal position. Yes. And again, that you you could just tell by what was happening in the ring and everyone's reaction. This is some baloney. (laughs) Yeah. Let me ask you this. You've been to the ECW arena. I have never been. And I regret not, not just going one time just to say, okay, I've been here. What was the atmosphere like? Did it ever, like you you say you're 15 years old, you're going to this. Did it ever feel dangerous? Outside the arena, it did. Oh, wow. Tell me yes. more about that. It was in South Philly, which I don't know how it is now, but back then it was crime infested. There were a lot of drugs. In fact, the first time my cousin and I ever went, 
we were using a, a an actual map to try and find the place and we stopped a cop to ask him where it was and he was an African-American guy, and he, he said, why are you guys out here? And my cousin said, you know, we're going to wrestling at this place. And he go, he looks at where we're going. He tells us where to go, and he goes, I'm going to tell you right now. He goes, you get your asses in there. You get inside the building. As soon as it's over, get in your cars and get the F out of here. This is not the place for you white boys. And my cousin and I are both like, where the hell are we? <laughs> It was not a good area. It was not as bad as Camden, New Jersey, but it was still a pretty rough area. You know, this is the first time I ever saw prostitutes on the side of the street with their pimps sitting in cars nearby. It it, it was that kind of area. You you could get whatever was wanted there, you know, as far as illicit drugs. It was you could just tell it was a depressed area. As soon as you got into it, you you. We would come in off of 95 and get into Philly, and we'd go through the nice parts of Philly, and then you're in South Philly, and it was just a whole different vibe. Oh, man. I love hearing about stuff like this because, I mean, that the African-American police officer who – did he pull you over or did you just go over national directions? No, he was standing outside his car, and my cousin pulled up next to him because where we're from, you can do that kind of thing, and the cop's not going to look at you like you're going to rob a liquor store. And my cousin pulled over and started asking him for directions. Hey, we're lost, and he's just looking at us like, are you guys putting me on? What's this? And as soon as my cousin said, hey, we're going to this wrestling show here, he was like, yeah, you guys need to get there and get the hell out of there. Because more in those kind of areas, if a police officer sees a couple of white kids cruising around, their chances are they're not looking for wrestling. Exactly. We were two white kids from the suburbs of New Jersey driving. Oh, even 90- better. Yeah, driving a 1993 uh, Honda hatchback. <laughs> With Jersey plates. You know, ah. Oh. Yeah, my cousin's wearing his Metallica T-shirt. I'm wearing my ACDC T-shirt. We both got long hair. We did not fit in at all. <laughs> and like I said, you, got, you, you know, usually kids like that who go into those areas are not looking to see pro wrestling. All right, now a couple of things. Like when Brian, here's something I wanted to ask you. When Brian Pillman was on the microphone and giving, you know, I mean, using the the most colorful language imaginable. What was the audio like? Could you actually hear what he was saying? Where were you? Well, let me ask you this then. Where were you sitting, first of all? We're on the hard camera side. And that's something we learned pretty quickly that if you want to be on the side where everybody's going to see, you got to get there early. We always were on the hard camera side. Again, we're coming from Jersey, and almost always it was a last minute decision within a couple days. My cousin would get off of work, he'd come pick me up, we'd head out there. So we were sitting back towards what they called the crow's nest, which is where they like to say that Joey was always sitting, which he almost never was. Yeah. So we were sitting back there. And one thing about the ECW arena, at least the times that I went, they had pretty good audio. Okay. You could hear you could hear Pillman, you know, clear as day. There were times I was there where the fans were so rambunctious, you couldn't hear a thing that was being said. Pillman was in there. You could hear him. That the as you were speaking, it dawned on me. Like, of course, you could hear everything. That's a Paul Heyman thing. 
Yes. But there were times you couldn't hear it. I mean, I saw, I was at a, a match there, and fans started throwing stuff into the ring. It wasn't the Terry Funk chair fiasco. They were just throwing stuff into the ring because they hated the match that was in the ring. I think, actually, El Portocaño was in the ring. And they were calling out on the PA system, telling people to stop throwing stuff, and you could barely hear the uh, the announcements. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could have all of the most sophisticated, well-set-up audio known to man, and if everyone's screaming over it, there's nothing you could do. I mean, I know this this show sold out, and I was watching the show yesterday, and not only was every chair filled, but there were people standing in places where there weren't chairs. I mean, they, they were packing people into that building, and yet they still insisted on having matches that went all over the building. It made no sense. That was from when we, my cousin and I started going, that was like a staple of, of going to an ECW show. And that was one of the, at least for us, the big drawing points is you don't get, just get to see the wrestling matches that are actually going to bring the wrestling matches to you in the, in the crowd. And there were a couple times that we were there. It's not like it is now where you see, you know, they've got five or 10 guys out there holding the crowd back, or even later in ECW after they started getting sued where they'd have guys back there pushing the crowd back away from them. These guys would be in the middle of a throng of fans and the, you know, throwing punches and chairs at each other. Like it was nothing. Uh, there was a couple of times, especially with Raven, where he would be in the crowd and you'd have to, you know, move out of the way or you were getting run over. Yeah. It was a little bit like Japan as far as that goes. Now, I have read that th on this occasion, there were a couple of altercations between, uh, the fans and the wrestlers, it wasn't the Pillman thing, but the Harris brothers got into the crowd and, you know, they were getting punched and they were throwing punches on this night. Yeah. yeah then that was not uncommon, especially at this period of time where you didn't have, you had a lot of new fans coming in who weren't used to how ECW shows went. They'd only seen videotapes or they'd seen it on TV. Most of the people that had been to shows before, when the wrestlers got there, they knew to keep back somewhat. But I remember being it, there, and it was uh, Axel Rotten and Balls Mahoney. And some fan just started punching balls in the back of the head, and he just turned around and started wailing the guy in the face. You know, that stuff happened. My cousin and I weren't getting anywhere near any of that because, again— you know, two white kids from New Jersey were not trying to go home and explain why we got stitches or why we got arrested for hitting a wrestler. <laughs> I would be one of those guys. I, I can't remember wrestling ever like landing in my lap per mm -hmm. se. But if it, if it ever came close to me, if that like, you know, I was in the bleachers of a high school and like the guys would start brawling up like that, that never happened. But if it did, I'd get the hell out of there. You and your cousin were smart. Yeah, well, it's. It's kind of odd to say this way, but it's the best way I can think of describe it. Wrestlers were always awe-inspiring to me. I met Andre the Giant when I was five years old at LaGuardia Airport, and from that point on, anytime I've seen a wrestler, there's that bit of awe in me. At the ECW arena, it was a much different thing. There wasn't that awe. It was, I don't want to get near these guys, because you don't know what they're going to do. You know, Sabu might come out of the ring and get ticked off and throw a, f a chair at a fan. That stuff happened. 
Raven might get real, got, might get ticked off and start cussing at a fan and try and come out into the crowd. That kind of stuff happened, especially when he got really bad into his addictions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know someone who was backstage at an ECW show right around this time, and the exact words he used, it was like a triage unit. It was like, you know, everyone was banged up and bleeding, and, you know, I mean, how do you do that every night? Or maybe not every night, but three nights a week. Well, I think it was uh, Rocco Rock said it when he was leaving, when he left to go to WCW. You have no idea the stuff we do to put on the shows we do for you guys. You know, that right there was an admission without an admission of, hey, we're doing a lot of extracurricular activities so we can come out here and do this stuff because it's not easy. I mean, I know someone who went to an ECW show and New Jack was going to jump off a balcony. Mm-hmm. And right before he did it, he had uh, someone gave him a crack pipe and he took a few hits off the crack pipe, went up and did his spot. Yeah, I can see that. You know, I mean, I saw New Jack, you know, scoring cocaine out in the parking lot and things. Oh, man. You know, it's that's kind of the vibe that was around the show. It was like, uh. You know, a big indie rock part rock concert where the guys are out there with the fans and, you know, if the fans have something for them, they're going to get it from them and they don't care who sees it. Oh, my. Ian, let me ask you this. I know you're not prepared to ask for this question, but you went to ECW, the ECW arena a bunch of times. What were the craziest things you ever saw at ECW? Not just like on this night, but in general, like what was the craziest thing you ever saw there? Probably the craziest thing I ever saw involved the Sandman. Not surprising. Yeah. It was out in the parking lot. It was after a show. I want to say it was early 97. Okay, Ian, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I love the way this story is starting. It's the Sandman. And he's in the parking lot after the show. What could possibly go wrong? He was drunk out of his mind. (laughs) And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. Hey, hey, you motherfuckers. Hey, hey, you motherfuckers. You want to go? And people are looking around to see who who he's yelling at. And he's yelling at somebody across the parking lot. And Raven came over and tried to get him and couldn't get him. You know, he's trying to hold him back and the Sandman's fighting him and the Sandman broke off and went running across the parking lot and football tackled this guy. And everybody just stopped and is watching it like, what the hell's going on? And Raven and a couple other guys ran over there. They're dragging him off. He's wearing his sneakers and he's just bringing his foot up and slamming it back down on this guy. And no idea what the hell happened, why he went off on this guy, but he just completely lost it. And my cousin and I are standing there and we're like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Because <laughs> we'd seen other stuff involving him. We'd seen him, you know, completely inebriated and going out to the ring and having no idea where he was. And we saw this and we're like, there's something this guy's got serious problems. Had no idea that he was, you know, doing heroin and coke and everything else. We just knew he's completely out of his mind. Yeah, there were wrestlers. I mean, I know Shane Douglas refused to wrestle with him because he was always out of it. And it's funny looking back at the Sandman, okay? 
here's a guy in the late 80s who was doing a bleach blonde pretty boy surfer gimmick. The Sandman, hey! And now he's in ECW with a cigarette in one hand, a beer in the other, just doing Sandman things. Yeah, and but that's he would leave the ring and every interaction I ever had or saw with him when he left the ring, he never turned it off. He'd be out there. He'd just be yelling at people or screaming, you know, or, you know, getting into fights or just being that loud, obnoxious drunk that you just wanted somebody to knock out. Oh man, this, this is too much. You know, one thing I wanted to mention about the Sandman, he was out there with that cane all the time. It became his trademark. And that all started, I want to say, 94. There was a controversy where mm-hmm. we had an American citizen in Singapore who did screwed up, did something. Spray painted. Oh, OK. There you go. Thank you. And the way they were going to punish him was to cane him. And mm-hmm. we're like, we're all like, no, you can't torture one of our citizens. Sometimes they go into they have seizures. And it's like Singapore is like, yeah, we're doing it. And that's where this all came from. Dangerously. Read about this in the newspaper and came up with the Singapore cane match. Yeah, and he that they really got over when he came Tommy Dreamer and Dreamer, you know, did the whole "Thank you, sir. May I have another?" Yep. And it, I, I tell you, you could hear those cane shots throughout the arena. People think that they were miked or that they, you know, they uh, they juice in the, juice the sound up some. No, when he, the Sandman hit somebody with one of those canes, you could hear it. I remember that. I remember the fans hating Tommy Dreamer. You've got it's ECW, and you've got a a good looking male named Tommy Dreamer, and of course he doesn't get over. And I mean, they came up with the idea to get him over doing that, and it worked. And I that was one of the th- he was I was one of the few people that never liked Tommy Dreamer. He just he was an eh, okay wrestler. He was awful on the microphone. He would start talking and just the cheese factor made your skin crawl and the fans just ate it all up. And it was just like, this is like a really bad college B movie from the eighties. Every time this guy gets on the microphone. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. You said you hated Tommy dreamer. Tom, I, Tommy dreamer was some, one of the rare wrestlers that couldn't get me to care. Like I didn't di- like him or dislike him. I just, accepted him in that role and obviously Heyman liked him and saw something in him and I'm just like okay let's see he was a young impressionable guy and he was willing to do it any any anything that the boss told him to do in order to keep a job and that's how I looked at him you know he always reminded me of that big dumb dumb jock from high school who you know now he's reliving his former glories that's the vibe he gave off. He just, he wasn't very good. And once he got his whole innervator of violence gimmick, it was okay. He's going to come out and hit people with a trash can for 20 minutes and let's go smoke a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the whole innervator of violence thing, but like, I mean, what can I say? Heyman liked the guy. He got him over. He's it's in your opinion. Is, is he kind of the face of ECW now? He is now, but for me personally, it's always been Sabu because I don't believe there would have been an ECW without Sabu. I mean, you really you. I mean, if you can go back and look uh, at the early episodes of the show that are on the network, we're on Peacock before Sabu came in. They were running bars. 
nobody really cared. He came in, he completely changed everything about it, and everybody started taking notice. And when he left, they didn't have that guy, so everything kind of lets up the garbage level just a little bit to kind of try and keep people interested in what we're doing. Now, were you at the show where Paulie came out and basically buried Sabu, said, you know, oh, he was booked to wrestle here, but he's wrestling in Japan instead, and he's letting you guys down? No, it was not, but we we saw the episodes on TV, and it was that was one of those things. It was like, I don't know if I want to go see it anymore if he's not going to be there. Because, uh, again, to me, he was the whole selling point of the show because – to be honest, most of the other guys that were in the company at that point were not that good, and they most certainly weren't enough to get me to spend money on a ticket. Yeah. I, you, know, you mentioned ECW. Like, to me, it changed, and the change is apparent. Like, one episode to the next episode where Eddie Gilbert left and Paulie Dangerously came in. I mean, it, like, the first episode, you could really tell that Paulie, you know, there, there was a, a change in Booker. And it was Paulie, and he was pushing guys, different guys, like uh, uh, Public Enemy. He brought in Sabu. He gave Taz his big, big push, etc. Well, yeah, and it, it took on a darker vibe when he when he left, and you could feel it. You could see it, and you could feel it, that there was a darker vibe going on. It wasn't that Mem- Memphis wrestling feel anymore that he had been pushing, you know, that low-budget version of, of Memphis. It, it, it had this whole different vibe to it. It was like, you, you know, a heavy metal concert, just not the nice heavy metal that your mom and dad aren't worried about you listening to, the stuff that they don't want you listening to, and they'll throw the albums out if they find it. That's, yeah, that's... I mean, that's really how the, the vibe of ECW changed significantly, and it continued to change to, it, you, you can, I mean, I've watched, you know, episodes on the, the network and you can see it goes from you know, re- wrestling to wrestling with some crazy stuff to some crazy stuff to a little wrestling thrown into we're just going to throw everything including the kitchen sink at each other yeah i mean the first i, I if i remember correctly the first episode uh when paulie took over he introduced the public enemy gimmick and you know they're saying you know we're the first generation to you know, we're not even trying to survive or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more afraid of living than they are of dying. There you go. Yep. Yeah, right. they were they were something else, and they're one of those acts that when they left the company, something was missing from that company. I mean, they, they were over like crazy in the ECW arena. Yeah, and um, you look at now, they were awful wrestlers. Completely awful, but... They had the, you know, the the charisma and the stuff they were doing because they were so completely out of it on whatever they were taking. We all ate it up. They would come out and even if they were the heels, the fans were into what they were doing. And they were other than Sabu. They were really the one act that would just go out there and, you know, tear the entire arena apart. Sorry, right. you know what? We are almost out of time. This hour always goes by so quickly. Ian, if you have time, can you share like one more ECW Arena story? I love these. Mm. 
I'll give you a new Jack story because people always seem to enjoy hearing about him. Sounds good. All right. This one was before a match. And my cousin and I are hanging out in the parking lot. We go in, we go inside, and we hear somebody yelling. We're not thinking about it. There's always somebody yelling around there. The crowd's always kind of rambunctious. And we get into the main arena area, and New Jack is standing there screaming at some other African-American about how he effed him over and he needs to freaking come through for it or there's going to be problems. And Heyman comes out. He's trying to calm New Jack down. Cousin and I are watching this thing. As we're going over to our seats and New Jack just starts hitting the guy and spitting on him. And we're watching this and my cousin goes, the guy's got to owe him drugs, has to owe him drugs. And sure enough, New Jack hits him a couple times and the guy reaches over and drops something into his hand. And New Jack's standing there and he's like, that's what I thought, bitch, and just turns around and walks away. This was around later part of 97, which is right around when my cousin and I stopped going because it stopped being fun. But, you know, New Jack, that was New Jack. Once he hit his stride, he was in it for, you know, we knew what he was there for. He wanted to get his drugs and do his show. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I've, I've heard stories about ECW Arena, but these are some of the best ones. Ian, thank you very much for coming on Sick to Wrestling. I, I really appreciate it. We'll have you on again. I mean, so like I said, it, it started off. We're going to talk about uh, the internet show, but like it went way beyond that. And it was, it was a lot more interesting than, than that particular show. I appreciate you having me on. As I said, your show is my weekly. I'm driving home from work. This is what I'm listening to is stick to wrestling. So I appreciate you having me on. Well, th thank you again. Thank you for that. That's what we want. A anytime someone says, this is my Friday go-to. It makes me a very happy person. I appreciate you having me on. All right. I want to thank Ian Totten for coming on the show and talking ECW with us. And this is a little bit extra innings thing. If you're not into this, thank you for listening to the wrestling part. And I look forward to speaking with you next week. But we are going to, as we did last week, talk a little bit about a guy named Richard O'Sullivan. And Richard is a producer, a director. I mean, wow, what a dream career. Oh, but I'm looking at his IMDB page, right? I wanted to sample Rich's fine producing, his fine directing efforts. And he's got movies, I guess, that he's put out. He's got eight movies coming out. They have been announced, right? So he's got eight projects that in the future he'll be working on. But then after that, and I'm looking from like 2004 through 2018. Okay, he's got a short, a bunch of shorts, which I don't want to watch. And then I, I looked to watch these movies. I want to see them. I want to see Doc Plague and the Truth Fairy. But I can't find it anywhere. And when I say anywhere, I mean, I've looked on Amazon Prime. I've looked on Roku, uh, YouTube, everything. I can't find this movie, any of his movies. It's not on, you know, I, I search my Roku channel. It's like, Richard, if you're going to produce movies, if you're going to produce content, you have to make that content available. Either that or some of us might start thinking your IMDb page is the equivalent of a fake resume. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to think that anyway, that you really haven't produced anything. Uh, anyway, 
Richard, he, he gets off on harassing people. About a week ago, Tony Khan agreed to be on Stick to Wrestling, and it's going to, he'll be on when his life is a little less crazy th- than it is now. And it made Richard crazy. He started harassing me. He started harassing Tony Khan. He started harassing Brian Last. He, in the past, has harassed Lou Kippelman. He harassed Sean Goodwin, as we discussed last week. And the thing is, all of the evidence points to the thing that Richard hated Sean so much for only happened in Richard's imagination. But let me tell you the worst instance of Richard O'Sullivan harassing people that I'm aware of. This is hideous. This is absolutely disturbing. And I promise all of you that every word is true. I am not exaggerating, okay? It bothers me to talk about this. Mark Nolte was a lifelong wrestling fan who I was friends with. Now, I never met him in person, but we used to talk on the phone like once a week. He, we would talk wrestling, baseball, football, whatever. Really good guy. Really knew his wrestling. I'm, I'm glad he considered me a friend. And this was like 20 years ago. I lived with my girlfriend. And one time Mark called. He's like, hey, may I speak with John? And she's like, oh, he's going to be home in 10 minutes. And instead of Mark saying, all right, I'll call in 10 minutes, he just like hung out with my girlfriend on the phone for 10 minutes. She, She loved him. She thought he was a great guy. Mark passed away back in 2015. Mark died. He finally succumbed to brain cancer, which he kept private. I had no idea that Mark was sick. And. The whole thing is awful enough, but he was married and he had a young child and he's leaving them behind. He has to go through life knowing that he's eventually going to leave them behind. And upon learning of Mark's death, Richard O'Sullivan gets on Facebook and he starts mocking Mark, saying that he's happy that Mark is dead. I'm not making this up. I know that's a big time accusation, but if you're hearing it, you're invited to go to our Six Wrestling Facebook page and ask, hey, did this really happen? Because people will tell you, not just me, that yes, it happened. And maybe we might even get a screenshot of it. I have no idea, but he did it. And, you know, I mean, celebrating someone being someone dying as everyone around him is still grieving. It's kind of a low thing to do. I don't know about that, but ah. Uh, I'm not lying or exaggerating. Richard O'Sullivan's behavior was beyond sickening on that day. So why did he do it? Why did he start mocking Mark's death and, and saying he's glad it happened? Well, Richard claimed that Mark had agreed to help him finance one of his films and that Mark eventually pulled out. Now, even if that were true, it doesn't excuse Richard O'Sullivan's behavior. But it's not true. How do I know it's not true that Mark promised him financing money? Last week, I openly wondered if Richard O'Sullivan had ever been in a relationship. And this makes me think it's even less likely that he's ever been in one. Even if Mark were willing to finance one of his projects and, oh, I believe Richard asked him. I know Richard asked him for money because Richard started asking me for money for this nonsense when he first got to know me just a little bit. And of course, I politely declined and he was okay with that. You know, I'm sure he's used to getting turned down on this. But let's say Mark said yes, 
right? Of course he's not an idiot, and I'm sure he declined, but let's just play along for a minute. Let's pretend Mark wanted to do this. Remember when I said Mark had a wife? Everyone, everyone who has ever been married or in a relationship just kind of said, yep, that's not getting past the wife. Can you imagine Mark walking up to his wife and saying, honey, I'd like to take our savings, our portfolio, and I'd like to invest in a movie. I'd like us to invest in a movie directed and produced by a guy I know from the internet. No, I know him from a message board, a pro wrestling message board. That's who I want us to send our money to. That's, that's, that's him. Are you serious? You really thought this was going to happen, Richard? You really think that someone else think believes you when they tell you that's what's going to happen? Oh, sure, Mark. Just take all our money and send it to Richard O'Sullivan. We'll get rich. Never. You idiot. Ah. Uh. No one, like I said, no one in their right mind is going to believe that. No one in their wrong mind is going to believe that. It's not going to happen. But this is Richard's pattern. He did the same thing to Sean Goodwin. He makes up a story out of thin air and he comes after you. About a year and a half ago, I made a big mistake. The Mark Nolte story that I just told you, it wasn't in the front of my mind. And I asked Richard, I invited him to be part of Stick to Wrestling. I invited him to be a guest on an episode. And I wish there was someone on that day who just was there to remind me of what Richard did with Mark Nolte. Because I would have just said, you know what, you're right. I'll just have someone else on. This brings me to anyone who is friendly with Richard Sullivan, O'Sullivan, on the internet, in wrestling groups. You've just been told, you've just been reminded of who he really is. I'm not here to tell anyone what to do, but I'm making a suggestion. If you're in one of his Facebook groups, if you're still somehow on Wrestling Classics, it's time to walk away. It's time to get that guy out of your life or stay in his life knowing that you're involved with someone, with a person like Richard O'Sullivan, and you live with that decision. He is a really bad guy. And let me tell you, this is not a pro wrestling angle. This isn't something I'm doing for entertainment. This is real life. Richard O'Sullivan will decide that he does not like you for a fictional reason. And he'll try to mess with your real life. This is what an evil, malicious, deplorable person he is. He tried to find stick to wrestling's sponsors in order to harass him that's how far down the road this malicious person is willing to go and he's a producer who obviously has never produced anything as evidenced by his imdb page so he has nothing to do all day but to try to harass his perceived enemies like his like the stick to wrestling sponsors on one last sad note richard o'sullivan had been long since banned from the Wrestling Classics message board by Mark Nolte. Mark had a partnership with a guy named Dan Cherno. And as soon as Mark died, Dan Cherno unbanned Richard O'Sullivan from Wrestling Classics. Way to piss on Mark's grave, Mr. Cherno. 
Richard's enabler. That's who you are. And oh, and Dan, you're like the guy in line at the deli with a number in his hand waiting for that number to be called. And I'm the guy behind the counter who's eventually going to call it. I want to thank everyone for listening to Stick to Wrestling this week. I'm John McAdam. I want to thank Ian Totten. He, he was a great guest. We'll have him back. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.